This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. Joining me to discuss peer support or the use of community health workers is Ed Fisher. Ed is a University of North Carolina Gilling School of Public Health professor, as well as the American Academy of Family Physicians Global Director of Peers for Progress. Ed, welcome to the program and thank you for your time. Thank you, David. It's good to be with you. As always, I'll note my guest's bio is posted on the podcast website. Very briefly on background, we well know disease prevalence among Americans and the quality of health care Americans receive is highly variable. For example, according to the CDC, African-American men and women die at more twice the rate than whites from heart disease and stroke. Concerning health care quality, the Agency of Healthcare Research and Quality's 2014 Health Care Disparities Report concluded, disparities in quality and outcomes by income and race and ethnicity are large and persistent. The 2014 report further concluded disparities related to chronic disease management actually grew larger. With me to discuss how community health workers can improve care quality and lower morbidity and mortality is UNC's Ed Fisher. So with that, Ed, let me begin by asking, what are the reasons for or what's the impetus for peer support or community health workers? Sure. Well, I think there are lots of reasons. First of all, uh, community health workers and the peer support that is done by so many community health workers, promotores de salud, uh, village health volunteers, etc., around the world. Peer support fundamentally is as old as humankind, and it's a really important part of our behavior and our makeup. Uh, if someone answers no to the question, Do you have someone you can talk to about personal matters or call on for a favor? If you answer no to that question, that's as lethal as smoking cigarettes. So it's important to understand that the fundamental sort of psychological and behavioral process and social processes here are really um, very important, very powerful. Um, And so uh, that's the sort of bedrock of peer support. Then cutting to the chase, there's really exciting evidence emerging that community health workers, others that provide peer support, uh, have real advantages in addressing some of the problems you outlined. Uh, We know that peer supporters are able to reach people who traditional programs frequently are unable to reach. Uh, Mothers of children with asthma who are very low-income single moms, Uh, people in FQHCs, federally qualified health centers, who have diabetes, um, people who have multiple hospitalizations, uh, people who have coexisting mental health and uh, physical diseases like diabetes. All of these kinds of groups, we know that um, community health workers are able to reach them, engage them, and uh, help them uh, improve their health. So there's really exciting... um, evidence that this very fundamental strong feature of human behavior can be harnessed through community health workers and others to have a real benefit on our health. 
Great, thank you. So let's go to who are community health workers typically? How are they trained? Uh, and what providers use them? So community health workers are, uh, one definition is that they are members of the community uh, trained to uh, bridge the gap between uh, the health care system and individuals. Uh, usually they are trained to help people understand their health problems, uh, recognize the importance of specific interventions like uh, getting uh, flu shots or managing their diabetes or uh, eating a healthy diet and, and getting physical activity. Um, but they come in all sizes, shapes, and flavors, and stripes. Um, increasingly in the U.S., people are getting more serious about trying to uh, formalize the role of community health workers with standardized training and standardized protocols and even certification of them. But there's also a very strong tradition of community health workers as really being very much grassroots, informal helpers who uh, remain uh, remain sort of part of the community and not singled out as being uh, special or certified or licensed or, or wearing a white coat. So there's a lot of variety here. I think that variety is actually a strength that needs to be understood and respected um, because different people need different things. The needs of someone who's uh, uh, just retired and maybe their health isn't as good as it used to be, uh, maybe that person can get help from somebody else reaching out to them through their church, whereas if somebody's just being uh, told that they need to start using insulin to manage their diabetes, maybe they need something somewhat more systematic and somewhat more focused. So I think uh, the, the variety in the field, as I say, is a strength. So what types of providers or provider groups were, where would you see these? Um, similarly, I, I'm sorry to sound like a broken record, but a, a variety, uh, a lot of community health worker programs are organized through uh, clinical setting, primary care, uh, provider groups. Uh, they're also used like in, in cancer centers, cancer navigators are a frequent uh, role in, in people, uh, for people with uh, serious cancer. Um, but they're also used in community organizations, uh, and churches, and other community-based organizations. One study, uh, Peers for Progress funded, compared uh, community-based and clinic-based community health workers. And what was found was that the community-based uh, individuals tended to reach more people, engage more people, uh, but the average effect was smaller whereas clinically-based uh, community health workers tended to reach smaller numbers of people but with larger average effect. So you can see there's a complementarity there, and the community health workers, um, you know, different depending on the objectives and the needs of the population, perhaps different ways of staging community health workers. Okay, thank you. You did mention that this idea goes back hundreds of years. Right. Making somewhat of a comeback these days, what would explain that, or what explains their, the return of the use of community health workers? Well, I think part of it is the um, broad 
recognition that uh, we live in a in an age of chronic disease, not acute disease. Um, I imagine most of the listeners to your podcast are well familiar with the notions that the healthcare system that we have has sort of been designed to address acute diseases, and we're trying to figure out how to make it effective in chronic disease. From my perspective as a psychologist, uh, the key ingredient uh, in chronic disease is human behavior extended over decades. And uh, 15-minute encounters in doctors' offices aren't especially well designed for influencing behavior extending over decades. Uh, so I think we're, as a as a society, as a healthcare system, looking for strategies for helping people in their daily lives in the 24/7, uh, 365 days a year that they need to manage their diabetes or their arthritis or what have you. And I think uh, things like community health workers are coming to the fore because they're proving to be useful strategies in that. So again, we have increasing numbers of people with chronic and persistent uh, yeah. illness. Well, let me go to, uh, you did mention um, to what success or level, extent of their success, but let me press you further. Uh, can you speak more about what success or how have they been successful? What's the uh, evaluative evidence? Sure. Well, without going into a lot of detail, um, there have been a number of reviews uh, over the last 10 years showing uh, the success of uh, community health workers in a variety of settings. Um, one just a year ago in the annual review of public health uh, showed that community health workers were successful in uh, providing basic care uh, in, in settings where uh, health services are really um, understaffed and underfunded. They're effective in uh, linking people to care they should receive, helping people uh, get get shots, get immunizations that will be uh, helpful to them, and they're proving to be successful in helping people manage chronic diseases, uh, taking medications according to a regimen, uh, leading healthier lifestyles, uh, getting the medical care that they need, etc. cetera. Um, and we see evidence across these areas in terms of uh, reduced health care expenses, uh, reduced hospitalizations, reduced emergency care, improved clinical markers such as blood sugar and diabetes, uh, improved uh, mental health, a number of studies uh, uh, throughout the world in India, Pakistan, other places have shown community health workers successful in providing basic uh, psychological care and uh, referral for medication for people with mental health problems. Uh, so there's a variety of evidence that has grown over the last decades showing that uh, community health workers can be very, very beneficial. Thank you. I did mention at the top disparities are prevalent and persistent in our country. Right. What, what particular to the reduction disparities are they contributing? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons that uh, community health workers have been helpful in reducing disparities. One is uh, community health workers tend to uh, come from uh, the populations that we are trying to reach. And in general, human beings are more likely to follow the lead of someone who is similar to themselves. Um, that's not just limited to underserved populations. Uh, 
biggest predictor of what physicians prescribe is what their colleagues prescribe. Um, and uh, so uh, community health workers, if they are recruited from the populations that are uh, not getting all the care, not getting all the benefit they need, they become credible uh, uh, channels of information to their friends and neighbors, family members. Um, also, community health workers have the time and the training to really explain to people what it is that's important and why it's important. We've noticed, for instance, with diabetes in a number of settings where people were really um, uh, in settings with very disadvantaged healthcare systems, um, improvements of two and three points on hemoglobin A1C. Those are very significant for people not familiar with the measure, very uh, significant reductions in uh, blood glucose among people with diabetes. And what seems to be going on in these studies is that the individuals have been told often by their doctors and nurses the importance of taking their diabetes medicines even if they're feeling fine. But that doesn't necessarily mean people do that. The community health workers then, the peer supporters, the promotores de salud, have the time to really explain to people why it is that they need to take their diabetes medicine every day, why it's important, how it works, etc. And then people start doing it. So there's a fundamental point here that I think is really important. We sometimes think that people who are not doing what they can for their health, that there's something somehow fundamentally wrong with, uh, with them or their ability to act in a healthy way. And what I think we recognize increasingly is no, they're perfectly capable of acting well on their own behalf, uh, but they haven't always been given the message in a way that's effective. And community health workers seem to be a way of getting the message to people who otherwise haven't gotten all the messages they should. Okay, thank you. Let me ask um, next, obviously this is somewhat of a culture change in the clinical practice setting. How successfully have peer support workers been integrated in the provider practice setting? I think that's a, that's a really important question. Uh, typically, providers are concerned about uh, their patients getting bad information or being encouraged to do things that aren't good for them. Um, and what we find in practice uh, where the community health workers are given sufficient training, given supervision and backup uh, so that they can be effective, they have someone to turn to when they uh, get a question that they don't know the answer to. When, when, the, when the program is well established, then it really enables the doctor and the nurse to be more effective than they are otherwise because they're not having to do as many things for people that uh, they're not all that much trained to do. Community health workers can help uh, talk to people, can help people understand what they need to do, and the doctors and nurses end up being able to do better medicine. Um, but there is, is reservation. So I think these programs have to be developed where there's a clear understanding on the part of the clinical teams as to what the community health workers are going to be doing, how they're going to be linked, how they're going to be um, backed up so that uh, they, they won't uh, get patients in trouble, etc. So to a large part, they're successful to the extent there's clinical buy-in. There's clinical buy-in, and I think 
a, a system that actually supports their effective uh, work. You know, nobody is successful just out running around on their own. We all uh, succeed largely through the, the settings and systems that support our work, and I think that's true for community health workers as well. Right, cooperative effort, correct. Yeah. Let's go to the uh, always the relevant question, and that is uh, reimbursement for these services. Sure. Um, where are we on that front? Well, I think we're in exciting times. The Affordable Care Act um, has a number of provisions in it that call for the reimbursement of community health workers. Um, one of the things that we think is important is that that reimbursement be for community health worker programs as well as individual community health workers. So that, for instance, if you run an FQHC, uh, you can meet state requirements for training and supervision and uh, recruit folks to do this kind of work and get your program uh, reimbursed by the state for those services. Um, there's also exciting work in the uh, pay for value, uh, pay for performance, and capitated approaches that instead of uh, fee for service approaches that will provide provider groups um, per member per month kinds of reimbursement and then they can make smart decisions as to how those resources are divvied up and use them in part to uh, support community health worker services. A lot of them are doing that and showing good returns on investment, improvements in health, improvements in patterns of patient care. So there's um, really exciting evidence emerging that these things are working. Good. And uh, there's also a good deal under the ACA of experimentation on this front, correct? Right. Uh, CMS and the Innovation Center are sponsoring some major projects. ARC is sponsoring the CORI projects. Uh, there's quite a bit of work in sort of, the, as we, we call it, uh, the real world, uh, trying to look at um, models for scaling up and disseminating these, these programs. Okay, thank you, Ed. And I think we have one uh, time for one uh, last question. What's your expectation or anticipation uh, relative to how peer support will evolve, say, over the next one to three years? Um, I think peer support is increasingly recognized by people who are familiar with it as, as just sort of a given that it's important, it needs to be part of the healthcare system, that it can be helpful across the range of problems that we've discussed. And I think that uh, with uh, payment plans and organizational plans emerging, uh, we're going to really move forward in the next few years toward peer support being just a routine part of the, the healthcare team, that people with a chronic disease, people with a mental health problem, uh, perhaps pregnant women, new parents, uh, will just come to expect that a community health worker or peer supporter by some other name uh, will be part of the, the team of people helping them. Great. Thank you, Ed. We're at our, our time limit, so I appreciate this uh, primer on the program, peer support, and we'll see how it evolves over time. Thank you again. Thank you, David. It's been fun to talk with you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.